No mai, haere mai, and welcome to Koko Ngati, a podcast that combines cross-cultural wahine Māori and Pacific male perspectives on issues and topics relating to us. It's our stories by our people. Kia ora, I'm Maya Wilson. Kia ora, I'm Johnson Riella, and we are the hosts of Koko Ngati. Season 1 focuses on being mixed race here in Aotearoa. Although we aren't entirely mixed race ourselves, we talk to inspiring people who openly share their experiences. We'd also like to make a special shout out to Foundation North and the Coconet.tv for their support in making this podcast. Today, we caught it all with a Māori and Scottish justice warrior who works in film and is a PhD student. I think the older I got, the more I realised that like this area of study is so dictated by what comes out of very middle-class, very European minds and labs. And, and um, you know, I started to realise that there's so much validity um, and importance of, you know, having Māori perspectives, Polynesian perspectives coming in and kind of, I wouldn't say challenging the status quo because we've always been great thinkers, we've always been great researchers, it's just not been recognised in these big institutions. Lizzie McLean talks to us about her upbringing in Whatafata in the mighty Waikato with her four brothers, Scottish mother and a hearty Māori dad. She also shares her passion for PhD research which focuses on finding better outcomes for Māori in the justice system and how she takes care of her own mental health. Okay, um, so kia ora everybody, ko Elizabeth Kararaina McLean Toku Ingoa, but everyone just calls me Lizzie. Um, it's a whole Toku Papa, here tēnei no Waikato. Um, so I'm Waikato through and through on my dad's side. Um, I grew up in the foothills and Whatafata, um, surrounded by my four brothers, my four brothers who are awesome, um, nieces and nephews and all my cousins. Um, so I'm really blessed in that sense. But on my mum's side, um, we've got English and Scottish heritage. So um, my grandmother um, was born and bred in the far north in England. Um, she met my grandfather, who was Scottish, um, but lived in New Zealand during the Second World War. Um, and she was what was called a war bride in those days. So they were married during the Second World War. And then um, when they decided to settle down and have kids um, after getting married, uh, they moved over here to New Zealand and settled in the South Island. So, um, yeah, so I always pay homage to that side of my whanau, despite not um, knowing them or being as connected with them um, as I am to my dad's side. What about, um, you know, your, you growing up? What was it like growing up as Lizzie? You know, I'm really lucky. I had an awesome childhood. Um, uh, my parents have always been very supportive. And um, I always say that I'm the product of a really beautiful biracial relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think if you saw my parents on the street, you wouldn't think that they were together. Um, my dad's very hearty Māori. Like, he's tutu to Māori. Um, and, he, you know, he grew up in the whenua, um, speaking te reo, um, was very sceptical of the state and like, you know, um, you know, in his younger days was a hearty activist and used to get into all sorts of mischief around that sort of stuff and around those kaupapa. Um, whereas my mum, you know, grew up in the deep south on a farm, um, you know, from, I, I guess, you know, a fairly normal middle class white family. Um, and so, we yeah, we always say it's always a strange kind of combination that they somehow ended up together but I guess when you know you know you know they've always had a really good relationship a really open conversations around um things that come with the fact that mum's Pakia and my dad's Māori um and because of that you know I was 
um, you know, privy to these conversations right from the get go. And so for me, it wasn't strange to be growing up in that and that sort of um, cultural balance, I guess you'd say. Um, and also I grew up with four really supportive brothers. Um, I get all the time because I've come from this house of boys. People always like, oh, you must have been such a princess or, you know, you must have been like, you know, the daughter that was always spoiled or whatever. Um, and that wasn't the case at all. And I think it's, um, it's you know, been one of life's best blessings for me is they treated me the exact same as, as everyone else. And I had the same experiences that the boys had. And, um, you know, I was never really left out or something. And I, you know, I think I'm better for it. Um, so I had a really awesome childhood mm. hanging out with them. We had a great time, yeah. So you talk about having these quite upfront and sometimes controversial conversations with your parents about your whakapapa, about mm. your uri. How did that shape your life and your experiences with other kids growing up? Um, I think, because my dad was part of the generation where, you know, you still had corporal punishment in schools mm-hmm. um, and he had some really... Um, pretty intense and like call it what it is racist interactions with things like teachers and that went right through to university as well I mean he told me some things that I don't think I would have dealt well with if I'd been at university when that was the sort of stuff that lecturers could say to you or you know Um, can you give us an example well I remember like we had so many stories of him he would tell me how you know him and his brothers would get pulled out of class for something that they'd done which they wouldn't have done and be beaten or something and so dad would like sometimes he'd crack a joke of you know like oh if I was getting the cane this is how I'd look after myself or whatever and um and 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 a lot of the time it was just because they were you know the naughty brown kids so like if something had happened it was obviously them you know and this like implicit just understanding that they were bad or whatever and so um yeah, it sucked listening to it, or it sucked listening to the things that they were called. But it was good in the sense that I, I never had, like, a warped sense of reality, mm. you know? Like, he was always just kind of like, uh, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. We know the values you have. You know what's important to you. But also, you've got to be aware that, you know, there are going to be people out there who don't hold those same values as you or don't um, don't necessarily see the world the same as you do. And so you've got to be prepared for that and you know, know that sometimes there's nothing you can do about it, but just be prepared, just be aware of it. Um, yeah, it was hard, but I think it's it's important, um, especially I think when you grow up and you get to the stage where you're thinking of moving out or being a little bit more independent. Um, I think it would have been a bit of a shock to the system if I moved out of home and then all of a sudden was like, oh, okay, not everyone, um, you know, deals with Māori on a regular basis or oh, okay, she was giving me, like, a weird side eye. She thinks I'm stealing, <laughs> you know, or something like, something like that, you know. Um, it didn't shock me as much as I think it would have if they didn't have those conversations with me. You've travelled um, to the UK, and so knowing that that's a part of you as well, but also, uh, you know, being very strong and you being Māori, um, what was it like seeing that place, especially knowing the fractured history between there and... Maori people in in the past um I actually really enjoyed my time in the UK I had uh I was I was 17 when I when I traveled there and again my parents were really supportive when I said to them that I wanted to when I finished school I wanted to go and spend a year there so it wasn't 
I yeah I I thought maybe it would be a little bit difficult and and there were occasions when I did miss home um, and miss my Fano but it it ended up being a lot easier than I thought it would be and it was quite nice actually to connect with that side of me I think regardless of history I still always want to be truthful to who I am and pay homage to that side of my Fano and like I'm very proud to be my mother's daughter. Mm. You know, and and that never leaves me for a second, um, and so it was really cool to be able to go and see, you know, places that were significant to our whakapapa on that side. Um, you know, like I went to the house that my grandmother was born in, and mm-hmm. I went to the church that my grandparents were married in, and um, and things like that. And it was really special to kind of connect um, on that level with that side of my Fano. So yeah, it was a lot easier than I thought it would, would be. Did you feel like that trip added value, not value, I guess, but added to who you are? You felt like maybe you may have not known or seen for your own eyes that side of your Fano. How was that just being able to feel like, did you feel a bit more complete? Yeah, I actually did as like kind of cliche as it sounds. I actually did feel more me and like Mm. a better understanding of, understanding of who I am there are a lot of traits I have that come from my mum and because I didn't have any knowledge of that side of her whanau I was kind of like is this a just a Kathy thing or is yeah. this like a whanau thing and and you know while I was there as well I tried to connect with like as many of her cousins who are still around and um, meeting some of them there were just things about them that I was like oh that's something that I do or that's mm that's a value that's really important to me or that's just innately part of my DNA. Um, so it was, yeah, it was awesome in that sense as well. Yeah. Have you, have you yourself, um, you said your dad has had experienced it. Have you yourself experienced racism? Oh yeah, all the time. And what does that look like to you and, and what was that experience like? I feel like it comes in, you know, racism is really insidious in the sense that it comes in so many different forms. Mm-hmm. I think and maybe an issue we have here in New Zealand as well is that it can be a little bit undercover and mm-hmm. sometimes it gets um, misinterpreted as comedy or mm-hmm. a joke, you know? Um, and the thing is I always find with jokes, I'm like, bro, it's not a joke unless I'm in on it and I'm not in on it because Māori or me or whoever is the butt of that joke. One thing that always frustrates me is obviously I have like a very European name so my Elizabeth. first name's Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, my first name's Elizabeth, and then I have a Scottish surname. And so on paper, I'm very white on paper, you know. And so um, I think like a real covert form that I always get is people always like they'll see me and they'll you know. I remember I walked into a job. It was like my first day, and you know, like my boss's boss was like Elizabeth McLean, and I was like, yeah, that's that's me. And he was just like how did this happen? And like, he had like, you know, and he had like a good old chuckle about it. And I think I even laughed about it too, because I was not really expecting it. I was like, we've literally never spoken before. And this is the first thing you say to me. But I think people don't understand that even those small things that they think, Oh, this is just, I'm just breaking the ice. We're just having a laugh. Ha ha ha. Um, is I'm, I'm like that in itself, you know, of, of forms of racism, because firstly you think it's okay to be, talking about my name, which has a history to it, and I'm very proud to walk around with it. Um, but I'm like, you wouldn't say that to, you know, a white woman who came in. Mm. You would just take it as face value, you know? So. Yeah, and you know what? I've, I've had to look at myself on that sort of, you know, I, I can be so shady. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I, I've had I've had to kind of check myself on that too because I, I consider it a joke, but really it's not, and it, and it's not acceptable. And mm. so yeah, I love I love how you how you shared with us that example. So thank thank you for that. So just hearing the emotion in your voice, you seem so passionate about this topic. Have you has this influenced any of your mahi in terms of if we talk about your PhD? Do you feel like it's influenced it in any any type of way? A hundred percent. I I mean, you know, growing up with having these really frank conversations with both my parents from both perspectives as well, um, it was also always something that I was interested in having a corridor about and, like, just always upscaling myself and mm-hmm. understanding how I could do better. Um, but then also as well, like, I work in psychology generally um, and I've always been really interested in human behaviour and... and how thoughts come about and that sort of stuff and um I think the older I got the more I realized that like this area of study is so dictated by what comes out of very middle class very European minds and labs and and um you know I started to realize that there's so much validity um and importance of you know having Maori perspectives Polynesian perspectives coming in and kind of I wouldn't say challenging the status quo because we've always been great thinkers. We've always been great researchers. It's just not been recognized in these big institutions. Um, but that there was real validity in us kind of um, bringing what we know to the fore and also prioritizing conversations or, or research that actually is like good for us mm-hmm. or benefits us and has us in mind. Um, and so when I realized that psych was something I loved and that I really enjoyed research, I was like, why don't I combine that with something that actually has tangible benefit for me? You know, there's mm. no point adding Sorry. to <laughs> adding to like a body of research that at the end of the day isn't really applicable to me or my situation. You know, we, we've, we've started to talk about um, study, but can, mm. can you let us know, you are doing your, your PhD. Mm. Um, what is it in? And yeah, tell us about your research and, and why it means so much to you. Um, so I'm doing my PhD in psychology with um, a focus on forensics, um, which basically is just talking about working with people who are in the justice system, um, or justice system, injustice, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I do something called I create life stories with people. Um, I'm a firm believer that qualitative approaches or Kaupapamadi driven approaches which is not focused on the numbers it's not focused on like meaningless data but is actually driven by um, what people are saying to you who are actually in the system or who are actually um, experiencing these things Um, so yeah what I do is I gather life stories with young people who are going through the system predominantly females um, just because being a a woman myself and understanding um, that not a lot of resource or focus goes into women or mm-hmm. young women. Um, it's and then women of and then colour. Women of colour, yeah. Māori, Polynesian women. Um, so that's kind of been where my focus has gone to. Um, so, yeah, we just gather their life stories and kind of understand, okay, so I started here, this is here, what is all, what's been going on mm-hmm. in between, um, where are kind of like the pressure points, um, how can we change the system because at the end of the day I, d- I definitely believe that um people are inherently good and they come with really 
amazing potential and and just a breadth of skills that um, we could be doing more to support them, mm. you know, through the system and, and through their, you know, various stages of life to, um, you know, lead a, I guess what you'd call a more pro-social life. Um, so, yeah, it's been really awesome to kind of focus a little bit more on um, strengths of Māori research mm. or, or things that we value as Māori. So, you know, storytelling, um, sharing and connecting as opposed to just being like, okay, give me some numbers, give me some stats. Um, yeah, and it's been really awesome. Um, and I think it is just I'm because I'm, I'm passionate about seeing young Māori women, uh, young women of colour as well, um, succeed and be supported to do so. So talking about that, where did this passion come from to look at Māori within the prison system, within the justice system? Mm. I, when I was doing my undergrad and I was still very broadly focused on psych, I knew I loved psych, um, but I actually got a, I got a job as, as a support worker um, for this Kaupapa Māori organisation called Hauora Waikato, which is based in the Waikato, but they do a lot of um, outreach work as well. Um, and that was actually where I discovered forensics. So I was working just in general mental health and then they needed a support worker to go help cover the courts um, for a couple days. And I was like, oh, I've got, you know, a pretty chill schedule at the moment. Like, I'm more than happy to do that. And it was my first exposure as an adult to the justice system and the support or, um, you know, support available to young people or people in general who are, being, who are going through the system. And it kind of clicked for me then. I saw... Um, you know, there aren't that many people who work in that space um, purely for Māori or purely to support Māori. Um, and I saw the work they did and I was totally inspired by it. But it's a, it's one of those things where you see it and you're like, oh, I want to be like you. Or mm. I want to be doing what you're doing. But I'm already seeing you're so under-resourced. Mm. You're so under-supported yourselves. And so you're they're expecting you to cover all of this and there's only one of you. Um, and so I could kind of... From that, I could see, I was like, you know, there's real, you know, there's an impact I could have in this space, and it's actually something that I could see myself doing for the rest of my life, and I'd be happy doing it as well. Um, and, yeah, I think things just snowballed from there, really. Yeah. That's cool. You were talking about, um, you know, using storytelling to, you know, as a key part of your research. And looking at some of the people that you've talked to um, through your research in the justice system or injustice however you want to call it uh what are some of those common themes if you're allowed to talk about some of them that you have um found that have come through the various different life stories these people have shared yeah i'm more than happy to talk about that i will say like off the bat and this is something that i've believed forever but it's only it's been more i think just stamped into me having done this research and stuff um i believe that maori and pacifica and polynesian people in general are the greatest storytellers mm. and i think it's an innate gift whether they're true or not stories. Yeah, whether those, yeah whether those stories are true but um i just think it's an innate gift and i feel like if you give people the space and it's a supportive environment i i would think regardless they're gonna tell an amazing story um and so it's been pretty incredible being able to sit with people in different you know situations and and hear them tell their story um in a way that seems good for them i guess mm -hmm. i feel like when you sit with um young maori or, or young 
Polynesian people, whether or not you see the conversation to it, culture always comes out mm-hmm. in some form. Um, and I feel like with older with older people, it tends to be, um, you know, com- conversations around disconnect mm. um, and um, maybe looking back at their lives and, and thinking, you know, back on maybe how they could have, you know, what they would have changed if they could have, mm. you know. And um, and sometimes those can be really difficult conversations to listen to um, because I think if you have a bad experience early on in life and it might be as simple as, you know, being a young young child and, and realising that maybe you can't speak the deal and, and thinking, yeah. oh, I don't have access to it, and then that kind of snowballing and affecting the rest of your life. Um, so it, it can be, yeah, it can be really sad kind of having those conversations and, and seeing that if, if people could go back and change it, they yeah. would, but also then acknowledging that at that time they did the best they could and, and maybe they weren't in a position to have the opportunity to change it. And I think it's kind of... It's it's hopeful um, that with younger people now, you're starting to get conversations about mm. them being a little bit stauncher and putting their foot down, I guess, and, and being like, I've decided that for my life I'm going to somehow access this. You know, and I, and I think maybe that's in keeping with the times that we are coming into a generation now where these sorts of discussions are being had and, and that people who aren't Māori are starting to come to the table and acknowledge the importance of um, connection to culture and stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I, do, I have hope in that sense. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's always a conversation that, that comes out whether or not you look for it. Um, I think building on from that as well, just general conversations around identity mm. um, always comes out. I always find it really interesting how people choose to introduce themselves um, and even as simple as, you know, um, if someone were to say, like, I'm Māori European or I'm European Māori or I'm, you know, what do they put first and is, is that a purposeful thing? Like, mm-hmm. a, you know? What do you say when you introduce yourself? Well, that's it. I've thought about this. I always say, I've always said Māori European. But then I think back to when I was younger as well and that was also how I was brought up. Like, my parents always said, you're Māori European. You know, like, you know, and I, I remember having this random conversation with my mum when I was like 15 or 16. It was so out of the blue and she'd been talking about like, I don't know why she was talking about this, but she talk, was talking to me about what would have happened if anything had happened to her and dad, which I was like, that is so morbid. Like, what are you talking about? And she'd, she'd said, oh, you know, if anything had, had happened to your father and I, like, you would have gone to Nana, which is my dad's mum. And I was like... Oh, that's like a bit, I feel like for a mum to say my f- husband's whānau mm. will raise my children if something happens to me. I, and I'd said, oh, you know, that's like a big thing for a mum to say that. That's so random. And she'd been like, you know, if you go to your Māori side of the whānau, like, you know, your nana and granddad will be able to ensure that you're always entrenched in that world and you right. always feel comfortable. Which, you know, she was just like, your other grandparents will love you unconditionally no matter what, but at the end of the day, they won't be able to provide you with that, you know, that part of your um, upbringing and, and identity. And she was like, I don't think that's a, you know, unfair thing to say, or I don't think it's, you know, and she, and she didn't say it was like a hard thing to say either. She just was like, oh, you know, 
it would make sense. Does it ever sense. change depending on what I talk about worlds? Like being in a Māori world, mm. sometimes I would talk a certain way or say, I'm Māori, mm. but I don't would disregard my other papa that I have. But sometimes when I'm in a Pākehā sense, I'm like, oh, no, I've got Italian heritage. <laughs> like, I've never been there, and I don't know heaps about it. But does that change for you? Like, maybe if you're in a European world, do you ever go, oh, no, I'm European, or oh, and Māori? Um, I, I think I always lead with Māori. Because at the end of the day, like, especially if it's, this is, like, face-to-face stuff, doesn't matter what I say, people are going to see my face, mm. and they're going to know that okay she's Maori so the world sees me before I introduce myself I think it does change a little bit if I'm in more European context because I might say like oh you know my mum's got English Scottish heritage you know um but if it was just like in just general every day I'd probably just like oh my mum's Pākehā you know um and I might say maybe I'd say she was you know brought up in down south maybe but um yeah I think yeah I've never thought about that before actually yeah you know what's interesting is that (laughs) <laughs> every podcast so far somebody has said I've actually never thought about that yeah. some of the questions that we've asked um, has also opened up um, some different kind of thought avenues for for the guest as well mm. which um, sometimes for us we're like oh okay which which is good because it's not just about us it's, a, mm. it's about yeah. the guest as well so yeah no cool that was a good question actually yeah mm. that was a really good question mm. so if you look at your research and you talk about you know, developing the storytelling with the people who who are a part of your research. How do you look after yourself and your own mental health? Because some of the, I assume, the corridor that you talk about is very heavy. Hmm. How do you protect you? Um, I mean, that's something that I had um, huge discussions with my supervisor before I started, hmm. before I even thought about submitting ethics applications and stuff, and, you know, having a safety plan for myself and, and for people I was interviewing um, in place was so important. Um, But I'm really lucky in the sense I've always been a pretty resilient person. Like, conversations have always come naturally to me in the sense I was always a chatterbox when I was younger. I was more than happy to have hard conversations. Um, And then also having this background, having previously worked um, as a support support worker in mental health um, organisations and stuff, it's, it's something that you know, over time I've kind of developed my own coping strategies for, um, so I'm, I think it's really important to give space to each interview or, or time when you spend, like I would never book people back to back and be like, I'm going to interview all these people and we're just going to go all day. And you know, I think it's super important to give yourself space, either time to decompress, um, go for a walk, clear your head a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and also as well, I think having, you know, for me being a student, I have to have a supervisor. Um, but if I wasn't a student, I think I would definitely still have some sort of support team and have it written into any sort of ethics I had as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people that you can actually discuss, what, you know, certain things with and kind of go over it. And um, yeah, so I think it's healthy to kind of vocalize it in some sense and just get it off your mm-hmm. chest and, um, and then kind of like put it to rest and be like, okay, cool, we've done that and I'm, I feel okay and then mm. move on to the next yeah yeah cool yeah. cool uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of little chuckle there because um, when we when we uh, we booked out a, a large two days and we did back-to-back podcast interviews mm-hmm. you know completely different but we did them back to back to back two days in a row and we were wrecked mm-hmm. like by the 
I was wrecked straight away. It took a little while for for it to settle in for her. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> the next week. And so, um, yeah, it, it is important. And, and that's something we've learned because we were taking on other people's emotions mm. too. Yeah. And so, um, lesson learned. <laughs> we might need to, um, you know, put some space there. I think if you'd asked me that, like, five or six years ago when I was first kind of starting with support work and stuff, um, I remember, like, I was always so keen and I was like, yeah, let's just pack my schedule like I don't want any free time I love it Uh, (laughs) like so stupid because yeah then you start doing a few and then you're like this is actually exhausting even just even if these weren't difficult conversations Mm. it's still hard to hold space for someone for an extended period of time and especially like you know if you're the interviewer um and you're kind of like I guess overseeing the session as well like it's not like you can be like I'm just gonna have a nap like (laughs) I just need a break but I think even if if we put this into a context of the listener for the podcast as opposed to just us yes we're interviewing people mm. but in the, in the context of of a listener who could be listening right now it's even you know when you have conversations with friends or with mm. family mm. um it doesn't have to be in an interview setting but it just you're just having a conversation mm. that sometimes when you are taking on someone's emotions to allow that space to breathe right mm. yeah. um because I think it triggers, right? So even us just having this conversation now, in the back of my head, I was like, I've had an experience like that that I haven't thought about in years. Mm, mm. And even having space in your own mind to be like, okay, actually, yeah. maybe I need to reflect on what this conversation has had the impact on me. It's mm. crazy how... And it'll be vice versa for the people you interview, the people we um, that will listen to this, the amount of conversations that it produces with others but those also those internal conflicts that you have yourself yeah yeah it's amazing how um yeah i feel like it doesn't matter how much you want to turn it off you know people will say things and it will always kind of come you know bring something to light in yourself and i think yeah like you said it's really important to table it and be like i think actually if it's triggering something in me i think i probably do have to go back and have a think about it and and reflect on it um because there's probably a reason why it's still in there somewhere Mm -hmm. hey Changing tack a little bit, um, you know, still kind of staying with, you know, your career. Um, you also have a career in film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, are you able to tell us about that or have you signed an NDA? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've signed a hefty NDA. <laughs> but I will, well, I can, there are some things I can talk about. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think in New Zealand, and again, I'll come back to Māori, uh, Pacifica, Polynesian people as well. I think we have amazing storytellers, and, and we're at the stage now where storytelling, I mean, traditionally people would be like, cool, I'm going to write a book, and someone can read it. But we're at the stage now where storytelling just comes in so many different mm-hmm. formats. And um, I think it's been beautiful seeing, um, you know, young people of colour in New Zealand taking that and running with it. You know, even this like podcasts are booming right now. Mm-hmm. And it's so true because it's like there's so many different media that you can actually be sharing information with and, and sharing space with people in. Um, so I'm excited for the next few years of um, filmmaking and mm-hmm. seeing and seeing what people come up with and, and different ways that they can be innovative. Because mm. I think also filmmaking as well, like traditionally it was I guess more just like, okay, we want to write a script and do a movie. Whereas now like things like, docos and and different kind of uses for film are becoming more and more the norm Mm. you know which i think is wicked because 
you know, obviously there's a big company that you've worked for that you've signed your non-disclosure <laughs> agreement with. But also um, you worked on an independent film mm. as well. So um, why? why? Why film and, and where does that interest come in and what particular area do you work in? Like, are you the leading actress? or? <laughs> yeah. Someone cast me. Um, no, I'm definitely not in front of the camera. 100% not. I would be useless. Um, no, so I work in production. And production, I guess, is you look after people and just general logistics type thing, I think you'd say. Um, filmmaking was something I stumbled across randomly. Like, when I was younger, I loved working in theatre and doing that sort of stuff as a teenager. I thought it was amazing. I loved watching people perform and contributing to, to that in my own way, being, like, really organised. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, um, yeah, as a young adult, I just somehow connected with some people that were into filmmaking, and I was like, oh, sure, like, surely these skills are transferable. I may as well give it a go. Mm. Um, yeah, and I ended up loving it. And I think it's it's something that marries quite well with, the research I do and, and um, working in psych as well, like now that I lean more on these qualitative methods that are a little bit off the beaten track and not normally what you see, like I totally believe in um, introducing different methods of gathering information, sharing information. And I, I truly believe that, you know, in the future we should be providing people with opportunities to learn about things, not just from like a journal article, you know, and not just gathering, you know, numbers. It's not just written. It's not just written, you know, and I would love to see, you know, in the future people having the opportunity to, okay, I want to present my research. I don't want to write a journal article. Mm. I want, you know, to present a research in, you know, film format or something. And also as well, I think that you owe it to the people you work with to give them the opportunity to have a say in, how they want what they've shared with you, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in terms of life stories and gathering these life stories, they're absolute taonga, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great to be able to say to them like, okay, cool. You've shared this with me. How would you want me to present this back? You know, I, and you know, and for people in the justice system um, who probably have not probably definitely have some really traumatic experiences with education um, uh, and, and don't like, written stuff they don't mm. want to read a book they don't want to go back to school mm. understandable you know if you're able to say to them like how would you or do you do you want to present it do you want to do an audiobook do you want to write some poetry mm. do you want me to do a film you know being able to give them these different op- options and for them to be like you know that's actually how i would love mm. my life to be presented let's mm. go with that um it kind of marries really well with that and i definitely see it being like mm. something that i pursue further down the you know, down the track, you know, trying to incorporate a little bit more of, of that creative side of my life into into research, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So how do you juggle it all? You're doing this PhD <laughs> and you're dabbling in film, like, how? Time management, girl. Like, seriously, get a diary. <laughs> I have a diary. Everything's out. Um, I think I'm when I was working full-time um, in film, I did – defer out of my PhD for I think it was like four months maybe I think um but yeah I think it's all about time management someone said to me when I was I was only like 12 or 13 or something and someone said to me if you want to get something done give it to a busy person Mm. and like I've always had that in the back of my mind I'm like there's the only person who is going to stop me from doing what I want to do and you know be involved in the things that I want to be involved in Mm. is myself so if I'm disciplined Mm. and if I 
um, stick to what I love um, and make sure, you know, if, if I'm getting involved in these things, it's something I'm actually passionate about and is going to add value to me and my community, then I'll make it work. Mm. Yeah. I like what you said around, um, you know, 100% believe, give it to a busy person. Yeah. Um, I but, you know, I, something that I've often thought about because everyone always says to me, man, you're so busy. You're so busy. You are so busy. <laughs> but I have, I have decided because I don't really, I don't really set New Year's resolutions, but um, I've decided that this year I'm probably going to focus on a couple of keywords. Mm-hmm. And one of the words that I wanted to um, focus on was rather than being always told, oh man, you're so busy. You're so busy. Um, the word is productive. Mm-hmm. I want to be productive. I don't want to be busy. And so um, one of the other words is intention, uh, where, you, where I choose to give my energy to intended purposes and intended people. Um, but yeah, productive, because often I found I've been so busy, but produced jack shit. Oh, <laughs> you know? I wouldn't say I would all say of that. that. <laughs> but there are times where I'm like, man, like I have this massive checklist and I just feel like it doesn't, doesn't get, you know, mm. ticked off. But um, in moving forward, for you... What is next? What does the next... Maybe let's just look at the next 12 months. What does that look like? Um, so I've got about 12 months, 12 to 16 months left on my PhD, like depending on how things go um, and also hoping that, you know, COVID doesn't interfere anymore. Um, so for me, I'm going into like a big year of kind of like tying up um, data collection and that sort of stuff and really writing my results and and discussion and stuff Mm. and then um again thinking about how we want to then you know disseminate that information um and it you know there's lots of discussions i need to have with um people i interview Mm. as well just how they would like it presented um but yeah that's a lot of a lot of my year is going to be spent on yeah wrapping that up which is exciting, mm. you know. Um, it's definitely come around quicker than I thought it would. I remember at the start being like three years or three and a half, whatever it ends up being, is such a long time. But time ticks. Time, mm. yeah, yeah. So it's a lot of my, um, yeah, a lot of my year is going to be spent on that. Yeah, because I remember when we came back from Japan, which is probably about three and a half years ago. Yeah, almost nearly yeah. four. Um, and you were like, "Yeah, I'm going to do my PhD." I'm like, what? <laughs> Like yeah, I'm gonna, I'm coming, coming to Wellington. Oh, no, you were, were you already here? Or no, you're, you're was, coming to I was Wellington. Coming to Wellington, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that. I mean maybe I should have prefaced the whole thing around. That's how Lizzie and I met. <laughs> yeah. Was we're, <laughs> we're on a, yeah young 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 leaders um, exchange in um, Japan, which was an amazing experience. But um, yeah. Final question to wrap it up. How do you hope your mahi? will inspire others or our next generation? I think something that I try to hold true to in my mahi, for me, is that it's my mahi, it's my kaupapa. Um, Don't let myself be influenced by other people who say you have to change it or say you have to do this. So my hope is always that people coming after me, especially young Māori women who want to come through the university and and think like, oh, that might be a piece of me, um, that they don't compromise their values and they don't compromise their passion um, for someone else who's saying, but this is actually how we do things. I really hope that people Mm. stick to their guns and... And, you know, if there's something they're passionate about and they want to do it a little bit differently, that's fine. You know, I, I really hope that they don't compromise 
their values. Yeah, I'd love to see that. I'd definitely love to see more young women, Māori women coming through doing that. Yeah. Go against the grain. Yeah, hard out. Hard out. Go against the grain. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 5 with our special guest, Lizzie McLean. We'd love to hear any of your feedback. Hit us up on our socials at Kokongati underscore podcast on Facebook or Instagram. Season 1 of Kokongati was made with support from Foundation North's Pacific Future Makers Fund and the Coconut.